sometimes they win. Even the devil was an angel once. The world has its own rules, and these rules are not human. Some of us seek answers to the origin and existence of cryptids and the unexplained. Join us as we venture beyond the known and accepted boundaries. Welcome to our nightmare. I think you're going to like it. Hey folks, good evening and welcome to Phantoms and Monsters Radio, where we explore and discuss the unknown and the unexplained. I'm your host, Lon Stricker. Thanks for joining me. Now, the Phantoms and Monsters Radio channel is made possible by you liking and uh, clicking and uh, the subscribe button and sharing our programming. Uh, Super Chat donations are essential for us to continue offering you our unique content, so your consideration is very much needed and appreciated. So tonight we're discussing Bigfoot, and we have three very experienced researchers and investigators joining the roundtable. Uh, Shane Corson was born in Scotland and moved to San Diego, California when he was a teenager. Shane has always been an avid outdoorsman, adventurer at heart, and interested in discovering new things. Shane loves tracking, hiking, fishing, and testing his survivalist skills. In 1997, he started doing field research on the subject of Bigfoot and spoke with eyewitnesses who had possible encounters primarily in the San Bernardino Mountains, Yosemite, and Northern California. Shane moved to Oregon in 2008 and continued his research in the Pacific Northwest. In 2011, his research became all too real to him when he had his own Bigfoot encounter. Shane's passion and methodology, along with his ambitions of furthering the research of Bigfoot, eventually led him to becoming the proud member of the Olympic Project. Now, Carter Bouchard has been an investigator with the BFRO for the last 13 years, originally from Texas and currently lives in Missouri. He has had nearly 100 reports published to the BFRO website and has interviewed nearly 400 witnesses and counting. He is an experienced outdoorsman and trained as an investigator for MUFON. He studied herpetology in college, longtime special interest in Sasquatch long-term habituation sites, burial research, infrasound, language, and stick structures. He is a true boots-on-the-ground researcher, investigator, and not a desktop warrior. He has met and visited the properties of nearly a half of the witnesses whose reports have been published. He monitors and visits several properties with ongoing habituation activity to this day. Carter's books are titled uh, Sasquatch Evidence of the Enigma 1 and 2, and he is a member of the Fams and Monsters 14 research team. Ron Cavallini is a, an award-winning independent filmmaker from the foothills of Pennsylvania. Ryan has been shooting independent films for over 20 years, he has been involved in all ends of filmmaking by producing, directing, writing, and editing. Along with filmmaking, Ryan has also years of experience as a treasure hunter, ghost investigator, Bigfoot researcher, and history buff. In 2018, Ryan started the Legend Hunters films to promote true research of forgotten folklore and legends through and out of the country. Uh, along with the Legend Hunters film, Ryan is an active speaker at UFO, Bigfoot, and film conventions. 
His website is legendhuntersfilms.com. Ryan is also known for several films, including The Mountain Devil, which was made in 2017, Mountain Devil 2, The Search for Jan Clement in 2020. And he is also a member of the Phantoms of Monsters 14 research team. So, guys, thanks for coming on this evening. Glad to be here. Yep. yep. Thanks for having us. So, uh, I guess the first question is going to be, and I'll start off with Shane. Uh, what is the allure of Bigfoot to you? I mean, why have you dedicated so much effort to investigating this being and in other cryptids? Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it's really simple for me. Uh, Sasquatch exists. I, I know them to exist. Um, I can't say that I know every in and out about them. I can't say I know a whole lot about them, but I know they exist. So that's a lure to me. You know, you have individuals that uh, have encounters and uh, some of them, um, it rocks their world. They become afraid of going out into nature, into the woods. You have others that want to shout to the world that these things exist. And, uh, and then you have others that don't want to talk about it. And then you have mm-hmm. some like myself that once uh, this uh, entity is solidified as existing in it, you know, being a real thing, you know, you, you pursue it. And so that's where the passion comes from on my end. And that's the allure is that uh, these things exist. They're out there. And I want to know as much as I can about them. How about you, Carter? Well, I'll, I'll mirror what, what Shane said. You know, I, I, I was leading expeditions and I, I, I watched one vanish while I'm watching it on thermal, just one step, two step, boom. It just flashed a light. It was gone. And I'm sitting there. I got to go to the dark side. I got to go to the metaphysical uh, paranormal side because this, you know, flesh and blood thing uh, doesn't explain that. You know, and then I started, you know, accumulate because I'm with BFR. I've been doing reports and reports and reports. These people start telling me off the wall stuff. And, you know, and like Shane said as well, it changes your life. It changes your perspective. You know, your reality is changed from the day you see one or experience one. And nobody can take that away from you. They can try. A lot of people get ridiculed and all that. But uh, once I saw that one disappear and I was doing reports and hearing the same thing, I'm going, these people aren't crazy. The ones that are crazy are the ones that are just ignoring it, you know, and you don't have to believe everything you hear, but you need to at least consider it because we don't have any answers. You know, Uh, I've seen them three times all at night. I haven't had a daytime sighting, but you know, I've experienced them in other ways, you know, uh, quantum wise, metaphysically. And it's just there's something going on that uh, the government and others don't want us to know. And that's why I'm knee deep in this. How are you, Ryan? Well, uh, I've always been shooting films for years and we did a lot of horror movies over the years and just kind of moved into documentaries. But, you know, Bigfoot, ghosts, UFOs have always been a huge interest because the monster aspect of it all. Right. But doing the documentaries, it was just a way to kind of put more concrete in it that these things exist. But me and my crew were like, we always say we're hopeful believers, you know, until I see one or have a better experience. Uh, I'm hopeful that they do exist. Do I truly believe? I don't know. We have a lot of evidence. I have a lot of things that happened to us while we were filming all, all the films. I can't explain, but I, until I see one or there's 
a physical one there, dead or alive, you know, it's it's hard to believe until that happens. So I guess that's why we keep making the films, hoping that maybe the evidence will sink in stronger every time we make something. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, like Shane and, and, and I've had an encounter and, um, you know, I never even thought about Bigfoot. I mean, geez, this is back in 81 when I had mine. But I, uh, you know, I had heard of Bigfoot. Of course, I heard the Patterson-Gimlin film, but I had no in intention of doing any investigations. But, of course, when I had the encounter, that changed. And uh, I started, you know, I got knee-deep in it, and that you know, kind of changed and kind of changed me and my perspective as to, to cryptozoology in general. But, um you know, and, you know, Carter brings this up about the um, the supernatural, possible supernatural aspect of these beings. I know what I saw was flesh and blood. But, you know, you hear all these stories and, you know, the evidence has been scant for the most part. And uh, what what are your thoughts about this? I mean, is, you know, Shane, is there a supernatural aspect of these beings? Well, personally, I don't think so. That's just my opinion. Um, yeah. Just my opinion. I, I don't believe so. Uh, I could be wrong, you know, because once again, nothing's been proven to date. Nothing's right. been proven. So all cards are on the table. Uh, but, er, uh, you know, if it walks like a duck, talks like a duck and acts like a duck, you know, and, and that's how I look at Sasquatch. Everything that uh, in all my years of research and the people I've collaborated with uh, and I've collaborated with a lot of BFRO and the Link Project members, uh, across, I mean, people from across the country. The, the absolute vast majority of them describe a flesh and blood creature, the vast mm -hmm. majority of them. And um, a lot of the stuff that I've found over the years that's paired up, you know, Sasquatch is paired with par paranormal. Uh, I do question because a lot of times I'm not saying there's not something else going on, but, you know, it's uh, I, I don't see it in intertwined with the Sasquatch. You know, if Sasquatch is um, uh, hunting animals, if it's possibly making nests, if it's leaving tracks and impressions and hair, if it's uh, raiding trash cans. You know, it's it's acting like a known flesh and blood creature. And uh, all the, you know, the audio we recorded over the years, the things we've got on Therm, the things we've seen in person, uh, both physical evidence and whatnot, uh, points to a, a, a creature that's just very, very small in number, but very elusive. And uh, so that's uh, that's the angle that I come from, is that I, I just, to date, I'm not seeing anything that I could not explain as a, a physical creature uh, everything points that direction yeah and you carter what do you think of that and i, I know what you think about that well it, it's it's you know i i began as flesh and blood i mean it didn't make sense that they could do or be anything other than that until i i mm -hmm. saw that one vanish and it, that's not a camera malfunction i wasn't high or drunk or anything it, it was just like what you know and I've heard other things. And, and then the people are starting to tell me things that they wouldn't tell anybody. They've been sitting on for 10, 20, 30 years. I said, I, I can't tell this because I get ridiculed just telling you about the road crossing. And then they start telling, but they don't want these people. They're just sincere. They don't want anything. They don't want any fame or fortune. They don't want their name out. They, they're just telling you these stories. And you can tell some of them are deeply affected, you know, and the only thing I can equate them possibly thinking they're seeing things is that PTSD or the shock of actually seeing a flesh and blood creature that's not supposed to exist is suddenly right in front of you and you go into shock and maybe you are 
thinking you saw it disappear or what have you. But there's so many people. They're not in shock. They're just telling me a story. And it's it vanished. It went behind a tree. It went in a tree. It walked in my wall. You just walked through a wall in my house. You just It sounds fantastical and sci-fi. But enough people are coming at me with this stuff. It's There's got to be something there. You know, right. uh, that's why I say consider it. You don't have to believe it, but put it on the plate and just think about it, you know, because there might be something else. Yeah. You know, I think it has to do with location for the most part of region. Now, Shane is up in the uh, Pacific Northwest. You know, I, I, I am kind of a, of the thought that there are pods, there are, there are family groups and such of these beings in certain areas like Pacific Northwest, maybe around the Gulf Coast down in Florida. But here in the east, and uh, we, we seem to have a lot of singular sightings of these beings that they will just show up all of a sudden and then they disappear. Uh, what are your thoughts on Ryan? You're, you're here in Pennsylvania. Uh, we just did another film called um, Double Three, the Bigfoot Invasion, which we just did a whole film on the possibility of the Bigfoot being an alien or coming from spaceships or whatever, because Pennsylvania has such a wide, uh, a long list of sightings where Bigfoots were seen, and then there was UFO involved, or there were flashes of light in the woods, and Bigfoots appear, disappear. I mean, there were a lot of cases. And when I was interviewing a lot of these uh, Bigfoot investigators, especially Stan Gordon, who was always Mm -hmm. a true believer in flesh and blood, but now he's kind of like, we, you know, we almost can't uh, not think about this. And I know there's a small percent of the Bigfoots, Bigfooters, I believe that maybe 20% of them, that Bigfoot could be an alien. Me, I, you know, I'm still on the fence, but uh, you got to keep that as an option. I mean, somebody, people are seeing these and then seeing UFOs at the same time, which is incredible. So it's always a possibility. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it's a strange thing because, um, here in the east and even some parts of the midwest there's a lot of other phenomena that are associated with a lot of these settings um you said ufos and uh, of course stan was the person who really started putting that out there uh after the encounters that he has been reporting out in the chestnut ridge and all throughout pennsylvania mm-hmm. but we, we get a lot of orb sightings and a lot of strange paranormal uh phenomena associated with it and um I don't know if you get that out in the uh, Pacific Northwest as much as we do. What do you, what do you say to that, Shane? You know, a lot of people do uh, report seeing orbs. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't. I'm personally taking in maybe one or two reports. Um, there have been. We do get them fairly often up here. Um, you know, uh, my question always is, you know, you see an orb. Why do? Why is that tied to Sasquatch? I'm not saying there's nothing to the orbs. I've never personally seen one. The one thing I thought was an orb, I end up hiking way down this valley because it was this glowing blue thing and i thought it was an orb with a group of people end up being a mushroom uh a firefox (laughs) mushroom Mm. yeah but it looked like an orb it looked like it was moving but we're it's 12 o'clock in the morning you're out and you're walking around and there's this blue thing glowing and it ended up being a firefox mushroom i think a lot of it can be explained not everything i've got good friends that have seen some weird stuff and that i i i know they're telling the truth and and i know they've done their due diligence um my question always is you know, there, there's a lot of weird stuff that happens out in the woods in these remote areas and, and not even remote areas sometimes. But why does that, you know, my question always is, why is that tying with Sasquatch? Just because you're in the woods and because you're in, you know, you're involved in this phenomena or you're looking for something and you see that and then you automatically 
put two and two together. Not that people haven't seen per se, I guess both the Sasquatch and an orb or something like that. I know people have claimed that, but um, got to do your due diligence and, and try and get to the bottom of things. Like I did with the Firefox mushroom. If I just said, if I taken a photo of it or a video, it would have looked like an orb. Mm-hmm. But I, I went the extra step of figuring out what the heck this thing was. And it was, it was <laughs> a pain to get there. But when I got there, I realized we we're just looking at a mushroom. Um, so um, document everything and, and go the extra mile to figure out what it is. If, if you're bold enough. Um, I, I got a question here uh, from James in, in the chat. What's the best Bigfoot video after Patty? I, I, I personally say the Freeman film. I, I find that interesting. I, I don't know. What do you say, Carter? Freeman. That, that would be Freeman. Yeah. Uh, you know, not to mention some of the things in my private collection I can't show. Right. Uh, but you know, the Freeman, uh, and I know a lot of people kind of poo-poo that. You know, he's kind of 50-50 with folks, but He's just a good old down-home boy. I don't know if he's sophisticated enough to to fake it, and no offense to his survivors and all that, but I just that's just really legit. And I've got the print here on my wall, uh, which I don't think has dermal ridges, but some other prints uh, do have dermal ridges. But i say the Freeman film is probably right behind Patty. Hmm. What do and- you think, Ryan? I have to agree with you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Quick to the point. Sorry on that. <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> and, and and you, Shane? Or you lose Shane? I guess we... Oh. Did we lose Shane, uh, Vincent? Okay, well, we'll we'll go on from there. Uh, So he comes back. Let me know Uh, if uh, I got a question for Vincent. What's the most convincing evidence you've seen personally of Bigfoot? Okay, uh, Carter, what do you say to that? Well, the best evidence that I have seen was being gifted a certain number of rocks in a certain location that signified the number of people in my expedition party. Mm. And it appeared overnight. Uh, and I, I'd left a camera there. I went back to get the camera the next morning and there was six rocks on this log in two little groups, five on one end and one on the other. It, you know, I was leading the expedition. There was four expedition goers. There was four rocks behind my rock, which is kind of a larger triangular rock. And at the other end was my partner, uh, Harold in uh, uh, Illinois, who was with us, but he was not with us because uh, he was too physically, uh, you know, injured at the time to make this trek. So he stayed in the car in the parking lot. So there was one rock at the end, five on the others. And it, it was a message that we know who you are. We saw you here in the, the exact number of people. To me, that was an, a, a message. It was a conversation. They were communicating with me to let me know we saw you there and we understand you were talking to us, trying to communicate with us. That was just, it was out of, it was incredible. You know, when I, when I talk about it, when I saw it that time, I, I, I get chills every time I even talk about it because it was just like, Oh my God, 
how could this have happened? Because we left at midnight. We came back. I came back the next morning at eight o'clock. The chances of somebody being in that location at midnight, this is Trail of Tears in Illinois, between 12 at night and eight in the morning, aren't really good, you know. And how would they know to put five rocks in? It was just, I don't believe in coincidences. So that was my best uh, evidence that I'm on the right track. Mm-hmm. That for me, it just hands down. Incredible. How are you, Ryan? What's the best evidence you've seen? Uh, actually, when we were shooting Mountain Devil 1, this was, must have been 2010, 11, uh, there's a, a, an area in Clearfield, rocking area, where there was quite a few sightings for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one evening, Dave Rupert and I decided, well, we're going to go out and just kind of see what we can hear or sound. Uh, we are way back in the woods, far from anybody or anything. There was a nice clearing. And uh, and about two or three in the morning, we, we started having having rocks thrown at us. They weren't coming from the sky because we were out in the middle of a field, so they were. You could hear them coming right through the trees, right at us, and you could hear something walking across the the ledge of the mountain in front of us, and it stumbled, which was odd. I, I've never heard it, like something going and then stumbling, and then after that it left. And previously in the night we had wood knockings that weren't far away. And then about a few months later, Sean Forker and his guys were up in the same area, and they had experiences too. So yeah, we know about Sean's experience yeah. up there. So that was yeah. the only night ever, like hairs on the back of my head, neck were standing yeah. out. Like, it was actually frightening because I turned to Davis and you have your gun. He's like, "No, do you have yours?" <laughs> like we didn't know. We were actually kind of like, "Wow, what is this? What's going on?" You know? Yeah, I don't think you guys ever figured out what that was, but it was. I know it's scared of a Jesus out of, out of Sean and his bunch. Well, Eric Allman and his crew were up there quite right. a and they had rocks thrown at them at different times. Interesting. Yeah. Now, Shane, before you, you got cut off, um, what film beyond the Patty film do you think is the best evidence? Yeah, sorry, I lost power there for a second, but um, um, yeah, the, I have to agree with Carter. The, the Paul Freeman footage, I think, is, is phenomenal. Um, I really do. I really like it. I think uh, it's it's one of the best out there. Um, and once again, just like the, the Patterson-Gimlin film, it's not been disproven. And right. it's, stand, it's standing the test of time, which says a lot. Um, I also think uh, Jonathan and Sarah Brown, as far as thermal footage is concerned, and, you know, the Olympic Project does have some, but uh, Jonathan and Sarah Brown out in Chehalis, Washington, captured, uh, well, Jonathan did, but it was their property, uh, captured uh, what I believe is a Sasquatch on a, on, on therm. Um, mm. it's one, and I've been investigated. I've been out there. It's, it's fantastic. I think it's one of the best to date. And and there's others, um, as, you know, as far as evidence, um, I've seen a lot of great evidence over the years. I mean, just a lot of good stuff in-house and out-house. And uh, talked to a lot of interesting individuals that have shared a lot of interesting, very tantalizing stuff. Uh, I think uh, that academia would get a kick out of if they paid attention. Uh, but um, I honestly, I, I do think, uh, and, and I'm, uh, you know, I guess I'm going to, kind of toot my own horn here but i think the the nest area that we're working on currently right now it's it's it really is you know uh, it's the reason i moved to washington state it it is literally the reason i moved up here i was so enthralled with these nests and having talking you know spoken with the guy that originally found them a timber surveyor that you know in 27 years had never found anything like this Uh, um to me with the the nests the hair that was discovered in them the hand impressions the the foot impressions um the vocals were getting out of this area even currently, uh, to me, it's just it. It's to me, it's just absolutely astounding. It's amazing. So, t- you know, I guess uh, that to me is the most amazing uh, 
stuff that you know to date. Yeah, the film uh, that that Sean took of uh, the Olympic Project, and you guys have been investigating, details that pretty well. And uh, why don't you tell everybody a bit about that? Uh, you don't think these are being used anymore? They're an older, they're older pods or older nesting areas. Uh, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, I think they were. Um, uh, we're pretty sure they're made. Uh, you know, they the, the original nest there was made in the month of February to beginning of March, and that coincides with a seasonal salmon run up in this area. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in a remote area; um, it's hard to get to. It's behind locked gates uh, on on timberland. Um, there to date, we found twenty four of these things. Uh, two of them are actually built into uh, the huckleberry bushes uh, off the ground. They're smaller. We call them practice nests because they look like little miniature nests. Uh, that mirror image the ones on the ground and they nest range in size from about three and a half feet to, you know, almost eight and a half feet. Uh, all um, for the most part are bathtub shaped. They're all made out of huckleberry boughs with bigger branches on the bottom, smaller branches on top. And uh, you know, Dr. Meldrum, when we brought him out a couple years ago, he knows that when we deconstructed one of these nests, noticed that some of the huckleberry boughs were pushed in the ground and the nest was formulated around it, kind of like a bed frame. And then you got this really cushioned area and big indentation where something had been laying for a while. We don't think these nests are made for a day, say like a, what a, a, a gorilla would do, make a, a, a bed, a nest, and then take off. These were, there was, they're over a foot in depth, made out of a ton of material that um, it, would, it wouldn't make sense. And they're in clusters. They're basically, you got a ridge line with fingers or plateaus coming off of this. And a yeah, seasonal salmon creek with a steep incline down there. Um, they're made into, um, uh, yeah, and that, that picture there is an older picture. I mean, when they were originally found, they were all green and lush. This is this is like two years later. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they're, they're almost militarily shaped uh, or patterned, you know, in B formations on these uh, fingers in clusters. You'll have fiber, you know, seven to five in one spot. 300 you know yards or 150 yards away in the next plateau you'll have three or four more another 150 yards 50 yards away you'll have another cluster um these were used for i think more than a day probably a week or longer and uh, we got a lot of ideas as to you know if it isn't if indeed it is sasquatch making these nests um you know it could be a possible burling scenario because we did uh, for the first time you know 2016 these things were discovered we spent the first, that year finding a bunch more uh, after we're given you know permission to do what we do, and uh, we didn't find anything new after those first twenty three nests were discovered. We looked and looked uh, the same area uh, adjacent ravines, and uh, Todd Hale and I in two thousand twenty February two thousand twenty came across something making one of these things. We did not see it, but we had this thing approach us, and then it retreated, circled around us. And um, we uh, didn't, never got eyes on it, but heard it. it sounded massive, sounded bipedal. We get down into the area, and uh, lo and behold, there's a nest being made. In the month, we assume these things would be made. We don't assume they're being made every year. They're probably being made every four to five years uh, based on what we've been looking at. And uh, this thing left hand impressions. It left foot impressions. It left hair um, we brought Cliff Berkman. He's a good friend of ours out and we, he helped cast a lot of these tracks and impressions. Um, and so 
it's a it's a continuing uh, investigation. Uh, in right. fact, we, we've been doing in this area is we've been doing long term audio. Chris Spencer, uh, David Ellis of the Inland Project, uh, Chris Spencer specifically in this area. We've been placing long term audio units that record you know upwards of thirty days, um, and uh, some of the audio we've gone out of this area is you know it's 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 amazing. It's dumbfounding. It, it sounds very primate, very primate like in a lot mm-hmm. of aspects. I mean, then we got the usual wood knocks and all that. Um, but uh, these things aren't, you know, if indeed it's Sasquatch, and I do believe it is, they're not in there all the time. It's a seasonal thing. They do move through this area. I think as part of their, I won't say migration, but transitorial, you know, trespassing and moving around. They move it through this area, but they do hunker down, I think, in the months of February, March, possibly for a birthing scenario, but also because of the salmon runs in this area you know even in the olympics it doesn't get a whole lot of snow it's very it's got a very microclimate you'll still see huckleberry uh berries uh through february in this area which i think is really interesting and this area does have a lot of bear it's got a lot of cougars got a lot of deer you use your unglets but the deer the the bears seem to vacate this area when when you know we think the sasquatch around we don't find scat or any sign of bear uh, and then yeah, and so it's just like they just take off. So there's there's a lot there's a lot to this area, but uh, you know, come tomorrow we're gonna be spending a week out in this area. We've been leaving it alone, other than placing long term audio out there. And I, based on the audio, we think something's going on out there. Maybe possibly this is the year they're making, or there will be more nests found. And I'm excited about that. How big do you think the group is? Well, there's a uh, it's uh, so uh, when I first moved up to Washington, I stayed on a buddy's property that was about. Mm, 10 miles away from the nest mm-hmm. um, in a remote area. And the reason I stayed on this property, I was waiting for my house to foreclose and I stayed in my trailer on this guy's property, of, um, another limp project member. And he said, stay on this property because there's a logging gate right down the road and two different loggers reported seeing at like three 30 in the morning while they're waiting for the gate to be opened. They reported seeing a unit of four, a, a, a small, you know, two months apart. They didn't know each other, these loggers, but they both saw the same thing. A large male, a female, and two smaller ones. Um, and um, that was, again, I think in the months of March. So um, I, you know, if if indeed we're dealing with Sasquatch in this area, and once again, I do believe that, um, probably four or five, maybe, maybe I would say no more than seven, possibly. Mm. Um, but uh, definitely I would assume four, because 10 miles away for, for two different loggers, seen at least a, a unit of four. That tells me a lot, and uh, that's that's what I assume. But I could right. be I could be wrong, right? Well, that brings up another question, um, and I'll, I'll throw this to you, Carter. What are your thoughts on habituation? Glad you asked, because <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've got I've got uh, three habituation properties I I visit. I, I, I say I manage, but I'm. I'm welcome there. I just let them know I'm coming and they live there. And one family has had them for probably three generations. Grandma, great grandpa, this family. They have them and they interact with them in one way, shape or form. Once a week, once a month, they'll see them, they'll hear them. I've been there. I've sat on the porch and traded howls and and clacks back and forth. I mean, that's a treat. But they've seen two groups of, of three or four, uh, as Shane had mentioned. And so, uh, but they're different colors. So there's at least two families 
one of four and one of three living on their property they've seen them. One of them is, is kind of reddish and the other was kind of a grayish blackish, you know, and, and they've, they're friendly enough with them. They've shown them their babies. Right. One guy walks up, he walks to the, uh, he walks about a quarter mile to his gate, gets his mail and walks back in the morning, seven, seven thirty every morning, like clockwork, he walks the dog up there. And as he gets toward the gate, the dog, which is a really highly trained attack dog, suddenly just cowers and whimpers and just gets quiet. And that's how he knows they're there. But they hear and see them often. They give them, you know, apples, bags of apples, oranges, leftovers, and, and, and things of that nature. I've got three families that do that. One of them, another one that's in southeast Missouri, uh, they call the wife by the name her husband calls it a little like, you know, sugar pie, you know, a little, a little lovey dovey name. It's not sugar pie, but it's something similar to her name, but they, they don't leave. They're there full time because they've got the right food. They've got the right shelter. They got water. They got a place to hide. I mean, it's perfect. They've been going, they've been dealing with them for 15, 20 years, this family. And then before that, before they moved onto the property after the, the grandparents died, they heard the stories and so they're continuing the uh, relationship so to speak mm. they're there i mean they're and, and the funny thing is is that they forget to tell me it's such a regular thing with them and that's how you know uh, i haven't talked to you in a couple of weeks what's been going on well we went down we got a new car and uh, i went down to walmart today and oh well bobby saw a sasquatch this morning just matter of fact, like, you know, I went to get a haircut, I saw a Sasquatch. They don't, it's not that big of a deal until people who don't believe or have never been to their property see something or hear something. What was that? Well, depending on their believability, they either tell them what it is or they will tell them something else just to change the subject. But there are ongoing habituation properties and people are having these relationships mm -hmm. a lot. And so it's a real deal. How about you, Ryan? Have you seen any evidence of that here in Pennsylvania? Uh, I hear stories a lot out of the Marionville area. Um, okay. Um, families up there, but they're seeing like the, sh the short Bigfoots. They, they call them the Apple Steelers or I can't remember the name offhand. Abitwitch or whatever you call them. Yeah. Yeah. Like these short, small people. And the Indian, uh, there's a lot of Indian uh, Indians that live up that way. And they have stories about the the small Bigfoots that are still apples and what have you, but really just up in the Marionville area. I mean, uh, I'm sure people down by the Chestnut area probably have that occur more often. I just don't know of anything. Yeah. I mean, I, I live not far from there and uh, yeah, we do. We have heard of a lot of possible habituation with the smaller Albatwitch or these other beings. And I've had reports of people seeing them running around in fields and such, but um yeah, you know, the habituation overall, you don't hear a whole lot of it around here. How about you, uh, Shane? Do you hear a lot of that up there in the uh, Pacific Northwest? R rumors of it. I mean, um, not a whole lot. You know, I, and no offense to anybody. Like, once again, I can't prove anything. I'm, I'm not a big fan of the habituation. Um, right. I've investigated uh, people that have had them freaking around, you know, uh, frequently been around their house for lengthy periods of time. Mm -hmm. uh, my problem with habituation is, if something's in an area too long, like the nest area, for example, uh, the nest area, basically I compare the nest area to like a house. 
you can't see the nest from above or below. You can't walk in that door until you walk in that door. Once you walk into the nest, there's complete destruction all around there. All the huckleberry boughs are open. It's cleared out. Leaves are stripped off. If you give up your cards, then you're going to be known. So if you hang out in an area too long, I don't care if you're a Sasquatch or a bear or a deer or a moose or whatever have you. If you're in an area too much, too long, um, then you're going to, you need, you need food. You need all that stuff. You're going to leave a lot of impressions. Right. You're going to leave a lot of, uh, you're going to be known to be in that area and then you give up your cover. That's the issue I have. Not that Sasquatch doesn't frequent areas. I do believe that. I think mm-hmm. they're curious and they frequent areas, but I'm not, uh, uh, I'm not really, I don't know of anybody up here personally that uh, claims to, to have, you know, habituate anything or, you know, a Sasquatch. Um, I have heard rumors. Um, I'm not seeing any personally, any evidence of that. Um, I think Sasquatch does what it does. And, and uh, you know, if, uh, you know, one of the, 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 just real quick is, uh, you know, Donna, Donna, um, this lady we worked with for, for a while, she moved into a remote area. Well, not a remote area, but a, a house that was vacant for like four years. And for the, you know, over a couple of years, she, she would see this thing. She would, uh, it would, you know, would yell, it would scare her dogs or animals. It would throw stuff at their house, but it wasn't there for like months on end. It would come back and go. And sometimes it'd be months with nothing. And all of a sudden it's back. Um, you know, single female living in her house, her husband traveled around the country. Um, but it had a fascination with, with her. And I think that mainly because her house had a bunch of windows and, no blinds and so it could watch her from the woods it, it, yeah. it's tv so i think they, they 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 get curious and they'll hang out in an area um but to stay in one area and get all the substances all the nutrients and all the you know food and water you need you're going to give yourself up at some point in time so uh, maybe there's some to it i don't know well uh i got another question here um uh, from summer nights and neon lights uh how do the bigfoot handle the cold weather and the climate I mean, I guess just like any other animal. I mean, you know, they seem to adjust somehow. What about it, Carter? Well, uh, you know, there's a lot of theory. And when I first got into this, I didn't really consider this to be valid. But uh, caves, living in caves, yeah. you know, they are temperature controlled. Here in Missouri, we have, you know, storage that's all caves and it's 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 year round 74 degrees i mean you know winter summer it's temperate the whole time mm-hmm. so my only problem with them you know living in caves would be if i was on the run i'd want a way out i'd want a back door you know but they have watchers and they you know there's one that watches while everybody else is sleeping or eating and they probably take turns but you know but uh, you know i think if you're in the caves and if you can if you can control your body heat you can just dig a hole. You can crawl under a log. You can you, you can get into a tight space and use your body heat to keep yourself warm in really extreme uh, areas. But they would have to live in caves or have some type of control within their bodies where they could stay warm. Uh, yeah. Whether it's a mental thing or the body does some kind of transformation. I'm not talking about metaphysical stuff. I'm just talking about there's a, you know, chemical thing going on where they can control their heat, you know, uh, you know, like ducks with all their layers and their feathers and their down and stuff, you know, they may have compacted hairs that keep them much warmer than we would anticipate. Yeah. Ryan, what do you think? You know, I know here in Pennsylvania, it gets pretty bad some places (laughs) and uh, the winter and they gotta be using some type of shelter. Wouldn't you think? Well, I have to agree with him. You know, most likely caves 
we had a theory for a while that they move a lot like bears, especially right. the Chestnut Ridge and the mountain range. It goes all the way up to New York, all the way down below West Virginia. Yeah. So most, most likely they're traveling that and they have a pattern kind of like bears do. So colder months come, they kind of go down south a little bit more. If it warms up, they come back up. But uh, most of the time, like Carter said, mostly using caves. Like they probably have a route that they use and they just, hey, we have a home up north. We have a home north south and we, they just kind of rotate up and down. That was mm -hmm. our theory for the longest time. I, you know, I, I agree with that. I think there's a possibility that uh, the Bigfoot that around here do uh, migrate through the, the uh, Appalachians. I mean, uh, you know, there's a lot of mountain there, a lot of valleys, a lot of area, a lot of cover. Uh -huh. uh, they may very well utilize that. Well, totally. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's such a long... It's so yeah, huge. I mean, people don't realize. Well, you go all the way down to Georgia, up into you know, up into Maine, of course, and yeah, and we do get a lot of sightings along the the ridge. I mean, along the Appalachian Trail and in you know along the ridge line. So uh, possibly, yeah. uh, and now Shane, you mentioned that it's pretty tempered up there where you're at, and I think that's pretty conducive to them being able to survive in, in especially in groups up there. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned it earlier. I think, you know, I mean, deer survive up here. Wolves survive up here. Black bears survive up here. Black bears are semi-hibernators. They're not true hibernators. Right. They'll wake up and, yeah. So um, all these animals do it. And uh, I think they're more transitory. So if you look at, like, the elk populations up here, you know where to find them at certain times of the year. You right. know, they go up and down these mountains. You know, they go down to the valley and, and then go up, you know, depending on the snow line. And it's, it's not so much a migration. It's just transitory, elevational transitory movement. I think Sasquatch does that. We don't have a whole lot of caves out here. Uh, but and, and in some of these areas, we do get a ton. You know, up in the Olympics, they do get a lot of snow. But you just move. Mm -hmm. That's You just move. The elk do it. The bear do it. Yeah. All the animals do it. So they just move down in elevation. And that's why if you look at numbers for sightings, you get a lot of sightings in the winter at lower elevations. You know, uh, around homesteads where people are. Because people are not up on these mountains being trapped by snow. They're down lower. Well, that's where you're going to have your Sasquatch sightings and your bear sightings and your elk sightings. Because there's less snow down there in the valleys and then you get up high and yeah, there's a ton of snow. So I think it's a transitory thing. And I think the Sasquatch, I mean, they are hairy. I think they're, they're well, uh, well made to, to live out in these areas and they can you know, move around and, uh, you know, find a stump or uh, build a nest or, uh, you know, find these warm pockets or, you know, I mean, up in the Olympics too, you're surrounded by the coast, mm -hmm. you know, so you can go into these little microclimate areas with tons of food, you know, and, and uh, survive and thrive there uh, and uh, stay warm. So it's, yeah, I, I don't, I don't think there's a whole lot to it. I think they're just, you know, they're, they're, they're made for their environment and they're, they're geniuses in their environment, just like every other animal that's out there now that survives. Did you have something to add Carter? No, the other only thing I can think of uh, is abandoned buildings. Yeah. There's we get a, a lot, lot of that here. Family mm -hmm. yeah. buildings, uh, you know, farm, you know, sheds, you know, um, hay sheds that are just out in the middle of nowhere. Nobody goes there. They stash the hay and they go back and take a, a you know, a bale or two and then they're gone. Awfully wonderful insulation. And the only other thing that I would come up with, other than the cave systems and, and you know, abandoned buildings, is if they have a way as you know, this is going to get into the paranormal aspect, but if they have a way to meditate and lower their body temperature or raise it, as many of, you know, the, the monks and Tibetans can do, uh, that might be a possibility. But mm -hmm. 
Shane had mentioned, I mentioned it, you know, you know, how many layers of hair do they really have? Right. You know, what, if you got three or four, you got a couple of coats of down and then you've got a couple of coats of hair, yeah. you know, you could be in zero degrees and you'll break a sweat, you know? Yeah. So, um, and this, this goes to Shane. I'm burning it ask, could those nests be uh, where they raise their young or use them to have young? And I think you mentioned that. You think yeah, they're birthing sites? Uh, possibly. They're birthing or some sort of, uh, you know, nursery scenario. But not mm-hmm. for, we're not talking like they're using these things for months on end. There, there, there's a spell of time, and I guarantee it's no longer than February through March. So no longer than two months, but I would assume probably a week to a month tops in this area. Um, so, uh yeah, I mean, I that's where I lean based on the number of nests and the size of nests and also based on those bush nests. And the reason those bush nests, the ones we call the practice nests, they're like a mirror image of what's on the ground, but they're built three or four feet into the huckleberry bushes. The reason those are so fascinating, there are two of them we found in two on the same ridge line, but in two different nest sites. The interesting thing is Derek Randalls had done a lot of research on this um, after he got to visit the area and was led out there by this timber surveyor and a couple of DNR, the Department of Natural Resources, and the owner of this property. When he saw that bush nest, he did a lot of research on it. And, well, it's it's gorillas. They That's how they teach their young to build nests. They, they mm-hmm. practice nests, and the little ones will do that. And it's a mirror image, but not it won't hold any weight. It was just a almost like a practice nest. And so that tells me you got big ones and you got little ones. And so it's some sort of family unit, I would suspect, uh, and that uh, they're there for a reason, probably because of a birthing scenario or a nursery scenario for a spell of time, and also because of the nutrients, the amount of food in that area at that time of year, and the, the microclimate is phenomenal. So, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. We have the same thing at Clearfield, uh, right near the power lines. They were like, I don't want to say teepees, but you could tell something took sticks and they were inter- intertwined. Mm-hmm. And something was large enough for, to keep something out of the rain, basically. Couple of weeks later, we went back up, and they were gone. Hmm. Like they erased where they were. It was it was very odd because we're like we know we're in the right spot. Where are these? And they they were gone. Very odd. Mm. Yeah. Um, James asked, "Is it possible that some Bigfoot hibernate like bears? Do you think that's possible in some areas?" I don't. I, I don't. Here in Missouri, uh, they're seen in the winter. Mm-hmm. Spring, whatever you know, I, I, I don't, I don't think they have that, and I, I don't know. I'm not scientifically inclined, but I don't know how they would have that hibernation system in them. You know, like like bears do and other creatures do. But you know, they're seen enough around here uh, on a regular basis that I don't think they hibernate. Uh, you know, I think they've got a massive body that needs caloric intake. As, as do the young, you know, it, of course, a bear is a large creature too, uh, but it has the mechanism to turn itself off, so to speak, for several months at a time. I just, I don't see that here. Nobody else really sees it here because they're seen a lot, you know, on a regular basis. So I don't, here, I'm not, I don't believe it uh, one way or the other as far as hibernation for them. I don't think so. Yeah, I think we all agree on that. I, I don't think they do hibernate. I mean, we everywhere, I, you know, I've gotten reports from all seasons, so I don't think there's really much to that. Right. I, I don't know. So I got another question um, <clears throat> from Forrest. Do you guys know 
the one thing that will drive Sasquatch crazy as to something to eat or come for every time. I don't know. <laughs> what's 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 the what seems? Uh, let me ask Shane. Um, <laughs> what do you believe uh, they're they're you know what they like to eat the most? I mean, I'm quite sure it's different different areas, but how about up in your area? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I can't speak for around the country. I mean, up here. I mean, if you look at if you just look at the Native American aspect of this, the stories. I mean, the natives talking about you know them hanging salmon up in the salmon. Here comes the Sasquatch takes the salmon. So yeah. they, you know, and and I, I do believe there's a big part of that so up here in the Northwest. Obviously, the rest of the country doesn't have you know some parts do, but a lot of places don't have salmon or steelhead. They have trout and stuff like that. But up here, all all the way up to British Columbia, there's reports of Sasquatch stealing. You know, hundreds of years ago, Native Americans catches of salmon and steelhead. I think that plays a huge role. I mean, look at the brown bear and, and the grizzly. That's what they eat. Um, I do believe. Uh, again, huckleberry, huckleberry. And once again, you have different types of huckleberry all around the nation. You know, up here we have the, the most prominent one on the coastal areas is the evergreen huckleberry. And I think that plays a big role, uh, especially in these microclimate areas where it'll last, you know, it'll, you know, start off in August and last in some areas till February. Um, so I think, uh, yeah. And then I also think, uh, you know, Sasquatch is opportunistic. It'll, eat whatever the heck can get its hands on, but uh, even roadkill. I think that's why we have so many roadside crossings. That's my oh, opinion. Yeah. I think that's it's, big here. Yeah. Yes. Well, the number one sighting is, uh, you know, uh, roadside crossings. And there's a yeah. number of reasons for that. One, there's more people on the roads, right? right? You know, there's less people out hiking and camping. There's more people on the roads driving. And so, of course, you're going to have more roadside crossings. But I really do believe that Sasquatch is opportunistic and will uh, I got lots of reports of Sasquatch picking up a deer on the side of the road or you know when I did a cross-country trip all the way to Tennessee I, I looked at the roads and I saw tons of roadkill you name it raccoons and and deer and and armadillos and and you name it and I thought man what a smorgasbord of easy food sources you know if it's an omnivore which I do believe it is it'll, mm -hmm. it'll eat you know so yeah, yeah uh, it'll eat whatever it heck it wants. Um, you know, some people will tell you they like Starburst and, and blueberry muffins. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, here in Pennsylvania, well, here where I'm at, I'm in South Central Pennsylvania. I'm near Gettysburg. And uh, if you go west of Gettysburg, about 15 miles, you get up into Michaud State Forest. And Michaud's pretty well known for Bigfoot activity. But most of the sightings I get along Route 30 that goes right through Michaud are people seeing Bigfoot coming out onto the shoulders or onto the roads and picking up dead deer. Yeah. They do it a lot. And uh, I, I think most of the sightings I get are, are from people seeing them taking roadkill. Mm -hmm. They are opportunistic. And, and um, yeah. absolutely. Uh, as far as regular food, I mean, other than them hunting, and I think they do hunt game. Uh, I think, especially here in PA, but I, I seems to think they eat a lot of nuts and a lot of wild nuts, hickories, and and such in this area. Uh, I don't know. What do you think, uh, Carter? Well, he referred to something in his question about having to get a federal permit. So I wonder if he was getting under some kind of pheromone chips or some kind of uh, something that is federally controlled. Because he mentioned that you have to have a federal <laughs> permit, unless that was in the form of a question. You have to yeah. have a federal license to get your hands on this nasty stuff. Well, you know, I think a pheromone chip would be pretty nasty, you know, but uh, I've got a oh, lot. Of I, I have smelled those things. They are pretty bad. 
Well, that might be he was referring to, you know. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they do still, they love human food. Pies, oh, apples, absolutely. oranges, you know. We know they like jerky, you know. So <laughs> they're out there. I mean, you know, they love human food. That's that's yeah. one of the problems with habituation is when you start feeding them and then you pull back, they get irritated because they yeah. want that food. They want that apple pie. They want them chicken leftovers, the fried gizzards. They want the stuff that they can't get. You know, and so when you do habituate them to a regular feeding pattern and you decide you don't want to do it anymore, they get a little tested. You know, yeah, I think they're just like, you know, like a bear would be. I mean, if you're gifting, that's why I'm asking about gifting being possible, dangerous. You know, if you start gifting them food that they expect, uh, who's to say they're not going to cause issues? I don't know. What do you think about that, Ryan? I've heard people gifting and like it becomes a problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, like then they don't go away like a dog. I don't like they expect it and then it makes them lazy, I guess. I don't know. But I've noticed that when we had any sightings, like a Bigfoot or a sighting, the Bigfoot wasn't far from any water or like a, a reservoir or a lake of some sort. So obviously it's always a food source that, that they're always looking for. So don't feed them. <laughs> Let them go off to the lake and eat, you know? Yeah, I, I don't think I'd be feeding them. How about you, Shane? I mean, you get people feeding them up there? Once again, I've uh, heard stories about it. Uh, you get, you do have – I came across what I assume was somebody gifting. Uh, I was up in an area, and, and I came across a bunch of squash and pumpkins, this huge pile of stuff. And the guy was outside this van – or a guy – I never saw the person. There was a van parked, and he had a Bigfoot sticker. So I assume this guy was doing that. You don't hear about that a whole lot up here. Um, I'm sure people do it. Um, I just, I don't like to gift anything because then it becomes, uh, you know, habit and they come back and come back and come back. Um, and then when you stop that, you know, uh, you know, what happens after that? And, and, and then once again, I've never, I've never seen any evidence that show shows that they're actually taking it. I mean, uh, I remember, uh, there's a couple of cool things. I, I saw a, uh, David Ellis had a, uh, watermelon that looked like something had bitten through the watermelon and he actually casted the watermelon chunk and it actually looks like teeth um i've seen peanut butter jars where people have got fingers you know nutella um but then you know a lot of animals you're leaving that stuff out there so uh maybe sasquatch is is partaking but then what else is partaking what trash you're leaving out there and and all that so i i don't do it i think there's plenty of other ways to go about it personally but um, you know once again maybe uh there's something to it but just be careful what you do yeah, I um, I I know a farmer, and this has been years ago, and I was actually younger, who used to grow pumpkins, and uh, I had heard people saying that they were Bigfoot in the area, and you know, you know, this is a while back, but this guy lost half his crop one year, and he was wondering he was going in there eating the pumpkins. Well, you know, it wasn't people bust. I don't think people were going in there busting them up uh, because something was eating on them. So uh, I don't know. Yeah, I was going to say real quick, uh, you know, there's that the there was an article about chimpanzees. I think it was in like somewhere in in, in Africa, maybe Congo or something um, where the chimpanzees, these troops, you know, they used to raid crops during the day. But there was so much gorilla, you know, human warfare going on. They did. They learned to go in at night, sneak into these crop areas in Africa and steal the crops at night when people weren't biting. And Mm -hmm. they were very meticulous about that. To even the point where they would cross a road 
they would have somebody, you know, one of their troops, uh, one of their members watch the road as the others crossed. I mean, very, very smart. But then they would go in and raid the crops at night and take them back. And so uh, uh, I wouldn't call that uh, habituation. I wouldn't call that anything but being smart and, and, and adapting to your environments. And I think Sasquatch is very capable of doing that as well. Uh, you know, uh, I don't think anybody's out there leaving anything on purpose for the chimpanzees, but they know where to come for the food. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Um, you know, I, I, I've, I've heard so many of, of stories about this gifting. You know, J.C. Johnson used to talk about it with me all the time, and he'd be involved. He, he'd see people. He didn't like people gifting, but some of his colleagues used to do it. But uh, we did have one situation where they, they were in, in the process of doing some gifting. And now this was down in, in uh, around on the uh, the reservation the Denan Navajo over there by Farmington. I think it was right off the San Juan River, actually. But one time they received, and we checked it and we had it looked at, it was an Anastasi agate, carved agate, Anastasi uh-huh. agate. Bizarre. I mean, like, where did this <laughs> thing find that thing at? I guess it dug it up somehow. But uh, that was the damnest thing I'd ever seen. I've seen a lot of gifted stuff, but I, I don't think I ever saw anything like that. No. <laughs> My Canadian witness has been gifted a marble. Yeah. And uh, blue dragonflies left in his house. Really? Complete, perfectly, they're dead, but they're, every, their wing, everything is still intact. They're just, they just had just died. And so there is all kinds of gifting. You know, uh, one of my habituates and witnesses, they used to take a paper plate and they've been doing this before they contacted me, take a paper plate and put it out by their barn. And they used a couple of rocks to weight it down and they would leave food leftover dinner. Well, the food was disappearing. And, you know, as you mentioned, you don't know who's taking it or what's taking it. It could be a possum or a coon or whatever. But one night they came out and the food was gone and the rocks, there was two rocks they had there. There was the third rock added and they were stacked on top of each other, right in the middle of the plate. So what do you do with that? It's not a raccoon, it's not a possum, it's not a bear. It, you know, it's not, it, nobody does that. So there are signs that, you know, the gifting can work, you know, and they slowed the, they slowed the feeding down to a point where they kind of quit altogether because uh, the frustration of a couple of these Sasquatch was starting to show through. So they just stopped and it went away and there was nothing. But my point is that gifting can work and it doesn't always have to be food. It can just be material things, right. you know, but I mean, uh, I've got all kinds of stories about that reports, you know, from people that go through this routinely. It, right. It's, you know, it's fascinating, you know, yeah, the only habituation I ever been involved with, and I actually really wasn't involved in, but I got a lot of evidence from it, was up in Nova Scotia. And this farmer was actually had them a family group on his property. And uh, it was interesting, but there were some things involved as well. Um, possible UFO activity, possible orbs and such. Um, 
there were a lot of things that were unexplained associated with these beings. So, I mean, I don't know. Uh, here again, we come back to this possible supernatural aspect of these things. Um, let me ask you this, uh, Shane. Do you think the, do you think Bigfoot have a language? Uh, in other words, do they have, is, is it a universal Bigfoot language or is it something per group? Have you, and I, I think you guys have actually recorded something like that at some point, haven't you? Yeah. You know, I don't know, but I don't know if it's a language. I, I, and honestly, this is one of the areas that, I, you know, uh, I can't say a whole lot. I don't know if they have a language. Uh, we've recorded so many intriguing stuff over the years. Mm -hmm. Um but, you know, a lot of it, uh, I mean, quite honestly, I mean, uh, uh, they definitely have a form of communication. There's no doubt about that. Um, mm -hmm. And within the language, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I know a lot of people will say they do. Um, but, you know, I mean, a lot of stuff we record, I mean, it's not like, you know, if something's carrying on a full conversation. A lot of stuff is very, like I said, that we've recorded up here in the Central Northwest is uh, very, um, sometimes you can almost sound almost... Um, human-like and then it, it, a lot of times it's it's very 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 primate-like you know yeah. uh, we got a couple recordings that we call chimp bits or um where it sounds like a, a a troop of chimpanzees going crazy uh not barred owls or anything like that this is in visually looking at the stuff it doesn't compare with anything up here but um they definitely have some sort of communic you know com communication i don't know if that's a, a an exact language or not but uh yeah i mean i it's not uh something that I really subscribe to, but it's definitely, definitely a possibility. If you look at the Ron Moorhead recordings, I mean, uh, and stuff like that, that are I, really, really interesting. And, and, uh, yeah. and some of the other recordings out there, and we've got some similar, yeah, maybe they do have a, a form of, uh, of language. I don't know. Have you guys recorded anything up here in Pennsylvania, Ryan? No, I, I mean, we've heard things like the biggest thing we've ever heard was like children. It sounds like children, like yeah. Talking, I, I hear like, that a lot around mm -hmm, here. Mm -hmm, yeah, and it seems like they're they're always interested. We used to do those callbacks. Those uh, we'd play, you know, coyote sounds, and we'd play right. baby sounds, and that always seemed to make a little bit of activity happen. So they must be curious of babies in some form or kids. But uh, maybe that's that's the biggest thing we've ever heard was just like children chattering. That's the best way to describe it, I guess. How about you, Carter? Yeah, I've heard some uh, snickering. I've heard some you know, gibberish, uh, yeah. uh, some laughing. Um, mm -hmm. One night I was sitting, I went to my one of my research areas here in Missouri, and I just went by myself. I took all my gear, and I said, you know what? Screw it. I'm not going to use my gear. I'm going to sit right here. I'm going to have a couple of shots of fireball and a cocktail. I'm going to sit here by the fire and see if I get activity. And I was talking to the Sasquatch as though they were there. And uh, I heard at the end of my conversation, I said, here's all my gear. I'm not trying to record you. I'm not trying to film you. I, I decided I'm not going to do that. I don't want to violate your situation. So I'm just going to sit here, have a cocktail, enjoy the quiet and the peaceful night. And if you're here, let me know. And so, and I heard this little, it sounded like almost like hyena-like. It, mm -hmm. it was kind of a, 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 a cackling laugh. Then it last long, about two, three seconds. <laughs> Yeah. It was an odd sound, but I'm sitting there going, holy crap. Of course, I'm trying to think, you know, I'm a researcher and I believe certain things, but I'm also trying to find out what that could be. I want to disprove my theory if I can. If I can't, then I'm on to something in my mind. And I couldn't figure out, you know, uh, 
coyote, a, a rabbit, a, a fox in heat, a vixen fox sometimes will sound somewhat like that. Uh, if you hear that coming at you out of the middle of the night and it's pitch black, that'll get you. <laughs> if you've ever been walked up on a fox, a vixen fox in heat, oh my God, you know, that'll get you, know, that'll wake you up. But I, I've heard something, and some of it was akin to Ron Moorhead stuff. Mm hmm. And Ron and Scott Nelson have been to my research area here in Missouri, uh, a family that has a habituation. They came and visited. We talked about that. I mean, you know, Scott Nelson's a, you know, a linguist, you know, from the the army. I mean, how do you how do you shoot holes in that? You know, I mean, but he hasn't really told us what kind of language. He hasn't explained it out. But it, it's there are breathing patterns and punctuations and pauses that indicate a spoken language uh and that's his theory and you know and i'm not smart enough to argue that you know but i've heard enough things to go okay in my habituation lady in southeast missouri she's had a creature call her by her husband's favorite nickname for her while she's out working in the garden mm -hmm. so if yeah, I think they mimic. I mean, I think they try to mimic a lot of times. Well, they can mimic anything. And that's yeah. why, you know, uh, when you hear them just say, you like, you know, patty pie, uh, well, that's just mimicking. I mean, a bird can do that, you, mm -hmm. know? Uh, you know, any kind of bird, a lot of birds can do that. Crows can do that, you know? So, but, but, but if you hear that, well, that's not necessarily language, that's mimicry. But when you hear a run on sentence with pauses and stops and inflection and, uh, you go, that doesn't sound like a dog barking or a yeah. chimp or gorilla mm. screaming. That sounds like a language. But, you know, none of us sitting here can define that. Well, we don't know, right. you know, but it sure sounds a lot more like a language than it does like a just a primal scream. You know, you know it's an interesting question. And it's something I've always thought about because when I had my encounter in 81, I'm standing looking at this thing. It's about 40 foot in front of me, huge male. And it's clicking at me. Now, I don't know if it was gnashing its teeth or it was like a nervous thing or whatever it was. And that's the that's the drawing I had made of it. But this thing um, it made a clicking sound. I've only ever heard a few other people tell me that they've heard that sound. But uh, I don't know if it was communication or some type of nervous thing they did when they saw something they weren't familiar with. I don't know. But uh, it, it distinctly clicked at me. Yeah, there are African tribes that use uh, uh, clicking uh, in, in their in their language. You know, they'll right. be talking whatever in, in their language, and, and you can hear that it's words. But they'll they'll stop and, and use clicking sounds. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I don't remember the name of the tribe, but that is a, yeah. a yeah. speech pattern. You know, right? Yep. What do you think, Shane? Yeah, I mean. Um... Uh, the, the clicking thing's interesting, you know. I mean, and then here's the thing too: is you actually saw this figure and it was making a noise. If you heard that in the woods, you go, "Well, what the heck is that?" But you Absolutely. don't. You go. You don't put compare the two. How many people have heard stuff like that and not uh, know what was making that noise? Um, clicking whistles, uh, whoops. I mean, all that stuff. Um, I I think the majority of us here have either heard it or recorded it. Um, definitely a form of some sort of communication of some sorts. And, but then Dave, what is that? I, you know, who knows? So the, the interesting thing about the mimicry and um, it's very interesting, but so you got to come from either one way or the other, when it comes to mimicry, is it can Sasquatch mimic something 
at the stop of a diamond, here's it for the first time. Can it mimic it? Or isn't in an area long enough to like a, you know, like, like a parrot, for example, parrot will pick it up over time after you keep repeating something, you know, and repeating, 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 it'll pick it up. The Sasquatch, uh, this comes to my thought process, like with some of these long-term witnesses, uh, like Donna up here in, in Washington, where, uh, this Sasquatch seemed to be around that house quite frequently, uh, a large, probably a large male, not all the time, but quite frequently that uh, she could hear her dogs being called. She had two dogs that would go outside and uh, she would, hey, you know, I can't remember the dog's name off the top of my head, but she would call them or her husband would call them, you know, come back inside at night. You no, know, come back in. Well, one night she heard what sounded like her husband calling the dogs. Lay- oh, Layla. That was the name of one of the dogs. Layla. She heard that. It was, her husband wasn't home, <laughs> but somebody was calling the dogs. <laughs> but did that Sasquatch, if it was, did it learn that over time or did it learn it at the stop of a dime? I mean, just heard it one day and decided to do that. I think when something's in an area long enough, I think Sasquatch are very capable of mimicry. Uh, but they, I personally think they need to be in an area long enough to to hear that over and over again and then mimic it and then mimic and mimic. And then they almost perfect it. And uh I, I think that speaks to their intelligence and, and just their, uh, uh, it's actually kind of freaky. <laughs> yeah. 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 I've, I, like you said, if I'd heard that clicking sound coming out of the woods, I wouldn't think it was a bird or a squirrel or something making, I wouldn't even think it was anything about a Bigfoot, but it was weird. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I just got a question here from Forrest and it, it kind of goes along the lines of a story that I have a personal story and something I heard from a team member just the other day. He said the leftover mash from any major beer producing company factory is a product that the Sasquatch go crazy for. Well, this team member was telling me that she had heard something related to corn mash with stills. And it's funny when she said that to me, because my uncle and he's no longer with us, so I won't get him in trouble. But he, he they used to live up near Roan Mountain and ten, you know, um, North Carolina, and he had a still. And I remember when we went down there one time when I was younger, he was mentioning to my grandfather about the wild man busting his his still up when he was cooking. And they were they were taking the mash. <laughs> the corn mash. So I, I just thought that was funny when she mentioned it. Then I see this here about beer and grain, and I'm thinking. I, that's unusual. I, I, I guess they would like it, but I don't know. <laughs> I, have you heard anything like that? Any of you like that before? No, but I can, I can imagine that, you know, certain fruits, certain trees at a mm. certain time of year, when they, you know, reach a certain stage of decomposition, they could have medicinal or intoxicating properties. Maybe. You know, uh, that uh, My witness in Canada, uh, this guy, uh, you know, at a certain time of year, I think it was the aspen tree. Uh, the indigenous people up there and others know of when they get to a certain stage of decomposition, you can take big chunks of the rotting bark in just the tree itself and put it in your mouth and chew it up. And it's got medicinal purposes uh, to keep you healthy. And it has intoxicating purposes if you drink it, if you chew on it a little earlier or a little later than you're supposed to. So I can imagine that's happening naturally. Of course, that's not something we'll ever be a party to. Yeah. 
think. <laughs> you know, there's another there's another aspect about the Bigfoot phenomena that that has been has interested me is is how do they dispose of bodies, burial and such, and it, and you know I think Charter and I talked about a bit about this earlier. I know he he looks into that with his research, but we're we're investigating some sightings and some old research out at the uh, the Shawnee National Forest in Southern Illinois. And the gentleman who has talked to myself and Vincent mentioned that he observed Bigfoot burying their dead by pulling trees, pulling them down and, and clearing out and putting bodies underneath trees and putting it back down yeah. and covering it up. Have you ever heard of anything like that? I have. Yeah. Several have times. You? And, you know, it, uh, Autumn Williams has that in one of her books, I think. Uh, the guy she had in Florida. And uh, there's a, a place here in Missouri. Oh, the Enoch uh, book? Yeah. Huh? Enoch? Yeah, Enoch. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, there's a story here. Uh, the uh, Dora, there's a, a town called Dora. And uh, the woman uh, was named after the town. Her name was Dora. I can't remember her name, her last name. But anyway, uh, she was routinely taken out of her bedroom at night taken across the street to some caves and played with Sasquatch children. One night, the mother was in there and she was sobbing or very sad. And they buried, she clawed the dirt and buried her newborn that had died. And she was holding it, trying to nurse it. And she put it in the ground and buried it and patted it back down. And I've been trying to find where this cave is for so long. It's never going to happen. Yeah. But uh, Dora Bradley, that's it. If you look up Dora Bradley, uh, the story, uh, and uh, what's, uh, Tom Powell has a really great uh, version of that story. He mm -hmm. told us, he, actually, he's the one who told the story where I read it. And it was a great story. And But she had regular routine interactions with these creatures. She watched the mother bury her stillborn baby in this cave where they used to play. I mean, mm. it's awesome stuff, you know, and she watched it and, and she's been interviewed before, you know, because yeah. a lot of people don't buy that, but uh, there's too many stories of that, you know, yanking a tree out of the ground and putting a, a, a baby in there and then putting the tree back down and patting it down like it never happened, you know, and I've heard mm. a lot of stories about that, being able to pull up trees and brush to get to the roots and the succulents uh, underneath and then putting it back down without damaging the roots whatsoever because they know how to do it. So, yeah, burial, you know, I think they, they probably do bury their dead. Yeah, I think they probably do. I've heard stories, but the only stories I've ever heard about are, are young, you know, a, a dead infant or a dead juvenile mm -hmm. being buried. Somebody told me about them actually mourning a, a a juvenile that was put into a hollow stump and covered up with moss and such and mm -hmm. i mean i don't know you know i've heard of a lot of different things uh have you heard anything like this ryan i've heard of it i, I don't know much about it like everyone asks why we never find bigfoot bodies <clears throat> well do they know how big the alleghenies are <laughs> yeah well they are i mean yeah, yeah. i mean uh I mean, a couple within a few weeks, the body's decomposed pretty well, or it's drug apart by whatever other animals in the area. So, yeah, it doesn't last long around here, especially seven to ten days. The body's gone. You ever watch that show, uh, The Body Farm? Yeah, uh, they put out different, you know, human, yep. you know, cadaver cadavers that have been donated, and you know, you know, large animals, cattle, horse, whatever, and they just sit there and let it rot and mm -hmm. watch it. And 
five to seven days, seven to 10, it's gone. The bot flies get in and lay eggs and, you know, the, the, the you know, raccoons and possums like to chew on the marrow, the bones. And I mean, once it's, you know, disintegrated, it's, it goes to the four corners. It's gone. Nature is very efficient. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and if you're, you know, lions, tigers, elephants, they go somewhere if they're ill. And either they die or get better, but they hide themselves because they can't walk or move mm -hmm. around and hunt. So they will, sometimes they die when they're hidden and they're already buried, you know, and so right. you're never going to find them. Shane, what do you think about burials? Could happen. You know, the problem with, I used to be a licensed arborist and I used to work for a tree transplant company and up here in the Northwest, there's so much timbering going on. If it, it with, uh, if Sasquatch was, you know, you got a eight foot male, that dies and you bury him underneath the tree and you pull that tree up and put it down. A tree's going to probably fall over with the wind, the snowfall. Uh, and all. I just, it's hard for me to see that having transplanted many, many trees and seeing the amount of timbering that goes on up in these areas, you know, and we can get into conspiracies and all that, but uh, mm -hmm. I think there'd be more bodies turning up. Uh, do they bury their, their uh, dead? Quite possibly. Who knows? Um, you know, if, if Sasquatch is small in number, which I believe, I don't think there's, I think they do quite well in small numbers, like a lot. I mean, there's known gorilla populations that do well, uh, Cross River Gorilla, for example, do well in small numbers. <clears throat> um, you could, uh, it'd be like winning the lottery, finding a, a moving needle in a haystack to find a body that will, and uh, there's not many people out there looking for bones, let alone that can recognize a bone, unless you got a skull right in front of you, of course. Right. Uh, so I, I think, uh, you know, like most animals, uh, cats, dogs, you know, sometimes when they go to die, they don't want to be eaten alive and they want to go to the deepest, darkest place and they just disappear. I think Sasquatch does a lot of that. I think they, they just go to the deepest, darkest place. But do they bury their dead? Do they eat their dead? I don't know. Once again, uh, it's an interesting conversation. But I think uh, the tree thing up here, I think it'd be more, there would be more bodies found. But these trees wouldn't be able to stand. Um, you would need a big tree and then you'd have to secure that tree again. And uh, it would probably fall over time. Uh, and then the body would be exposed. Well, I'm going to go around with each of you and uh, give me a comment. Uh, any other comments you have about the Bigfoot phenomenon you think is important to point out? Uh, I'll start off with Carter. Well, uh, you know, they're thinking, sentient, sapient beings. I don't even call them a creature you know I, I think they're a lot smarter than we give them credit for the it could be a lot smarter than we are you know we have uh, progressed ourselves out of the ability to live off the land like they do you know we have cars computers jets blah 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 you know phones we don't have to, we got a store we can go to the store and buy food we, we've lost touch with how to really survive in the world so i think they're you know vastly more intelligent than us on that level you know and uh, you know, they're interacting with people and they're just now coming out. A lot of these people are coming out and talking about the esoteric things that nobody likes to talk about or doesn't hear a lot about. It doesn't get a lot of press because, okay, that's crazy, you know. Uh, but, you know, there's something going on. And here's, here's one thing I want to bring up. If there was nothing special, because they're discovering new species of Animals, plants, fish, every week you hear about something new. There's a new tree, there's a new bush, there's a new, you know, uh, you know, pygmy ape, there's new, there's fish, everything. What is so special about these beings? And I do believe the government knows full well exactly what's going on. What is so special about them that they don't want to talk about it? They want to deny it 
wholeheartedly. If it was just another dumb ape, they talk about that stuff all the time. They discover new chips and lizards all over the place, and it's not hidden or, or it's out in front of everybody. So why all the secrecy about this particular being? I don't get it. There's something up. You know, mm-hmm. that's my two cents. How about you, uh, Ryan? You got anything to say further? Uh, I, I truly believe there's there's something out there just from all the evidence from filming, uh, interviewing people that are so true and believe what they saw. You, you can tell a person who's making up a story and who really saw something. So I, I truly believe there's something out there. We've gotten great at, uh, evidence even through just uh, my own experiences, but I'm a hopeful believer. So I'm until I see one or experience it firsthand, I'm hopeful that these creatures are out there and and uh until i see one or there's a real one dead one i mean uh, I, I just have to wait till that happens <laughs> yeah how about you shane you know I'm, I'm just excited about the future uh you know i'm seeing uh not just within the olympic projects i work with but other groups and individuals working on some amazing things that are i think down the road here um, I'm such an optimist on this because, uh, you know, a lot of people say, oh, we've been at this for 50 years or 60. And that, to me, that's minuscule amount of time for this subject matter, uh, for something that uh, people claim to understand. Uh, I, you know, Sasquatch, they're, they're legit. They're out there. They're real. What are they? I can't tell you. I can't. I got my ideas, my own hypothesis, and I could be wrong. And I'm cool with that. But they are, they are a real thing. They're real entity. They're out there. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm really enthused because, uh, you know, working with groups like uh, with Amy Boo, uh, she's, you know, been a part of this before. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, Project Zubuk talking to young academics and uh, other individuals that are actually, you know, I, I say they're in the, the Sasquatch closet. They're not ready to come out of that closet and say, oh, yeah, we're into we're interested in the subject matter. But they're they're asking questions. They're providing feedback. To me, that's profound. And that's something that John Binnernagel, the late, great John Binnernagel wanted. He wanted to make the subject matter less taboo. And I think all of us can agree with that. We would love this subject matter, no matter what, where you come from, to be less taboo. And that's something John Binnernagel always wanted. And that's kind of my mantra. And I'm seeing a movement within academic academia in general that is very enthralling, appealing. And uh, I mean, I, I, there's only certain things I can do. I have my limitations, but to pass information or to get feedback that will better what I'm doing or better the people I work with doing. That's cool. That's cool. And I see that gaining speed thanks to many individuals including, uh, you know, Amy Boo and, and uh, the, the people I work with in the Olympic project and the people I collaborate outside of the Olympic project. Um, uh, too many people get dismayed with this topic and, and cryptids in general and, and a right. lot of stuff. But uh, you know, as soon as you go down that road, then if you're not having fun at it, get out. But uh, yeah. yeah, just get out. Yeah, I don't think I'd be doing this if I didn't enjoy it. <laughs> right. I'd be yeah. doing it too long. Don't ruin it for everybody else. But here's here's one thing I want to say: just this four of us, uh, we're discussing, and in a respectful, intelligent way, and we all have slightly differing opinions and beliefs, but we're not trashing each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, this is how research should be done we agree to disagree i i don't know if i agree about that but i think about that well it doesn't we're all a little bit right and we're all probably a little bit wrong because we don't know Mm -hmm. you know the government knows the (laughs) companies know you know the paper companies know uh but we don't know 
So but this is how a, an intelligent discourse should be held. I mean, thank you, Lon, for putting this on. But you know, well, this is how you come to some conclusions that everybody can embrace or give people like the people watching the show, give them you know voice too, because some of them believe what I say, some believe what Shane and what Ryan. You know, so this is how it should be done. You know, and you walk away going, well, that was respectful and intelligent. I may not agree with these guys, but, you know, that was that's how it ought to be done. Because we're not sitting there calling each other names and, you know, trashing. <laughs> each other. You know how hateful the cryptid world is. It's oh, I, I know. I'm so tired mm -hmm. of the backbiting after all this. Um, you know, it seems yeah. like, oh, it's, it is. It's disgusting. I feel like there's like four thousand ex-wives. <laughs> trying to talk you know yeah you know it's just, it's just this is real refreshing so this is how it ought to be so carter tell us what you're up to tell us your projects and how people can get a hold of you um you can get a hold of me uh, my website is www.relichominid.com and uh, i've written two books uh, i started one just because i had all these this material from BFRO reports, and then I started hearing the really esoteric quantum bizarre stuff, you know, and, uh, you know, Ron Moore had even contributed to my first book. So, I mean, we're, we're kind of on the same page, you know, uh, but that I may be working on a second book. I don't know. Uh, I've been invited to a habituation site uh, east of me here that uh, a guy has caves on his property and he thinks that uh, they're living there because they block the cave at certain times with giant boulders and stuff. So I, I'm working on the, the habituation stuff right now because this is, is fascinating, you know, mm -hmm. uh, so that's kind of what I'm doing. And uh, and the and the two books. So these these are them. There's one, and there's the other. Uh, good books, well researched. If I do say so myself, you know, there's no fiction in the books. These are what people tell me. Some people I've talked to, yeah, they're maybe full of crap, but they're not in the books. I I, I blow them off. I can tell when we all know when we're getting yanked. You know, right? <laughs> you can tell when somebody's yanking your chain. You know, so you know, much as I like to put some of these in there, I can't because you're full of crap, dude. <laughs> I'll move on to the next person. So anyway, that's me. You can get a hold of me, uh, buy a book, or if you got a report that nobody else will listen to or talk to, I'm listening. I'm not gonna laugh or scoff. I want I want your data, you know. How about you, Ron? Um we're always filming something. Uh we just finished a, a Bigfoot film called Mom Devil Three, which all our films are at www.legendhunterfilms.com or you can get them on Amazon. We always have a couple projects going and, and currently i'm really i'm really concentrating on a lot of this missing people uh, missing people that come up in these state parks that just fascinates me the highest yeah. degree. Mm -hmm. yeah. one books are amazing and uh i just would really like to dive into that more in the pennsylvania area just <laughs> it's great stuff and uh, mm -hmm. is bigfoot or not a bigfoot i don't know but um uh, that's probably a couple projects down the line because we jump around from treasure hunting to Bigfoot to a couple different things. So I don't want all our films to be Bigfoot. Uh, it just it gets redundant and old to me. Like <laughs> 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 the dead horse. I just I got to do something else for a little bit, and then we'll come back to it in a different angle. So. Well, I also want to mention that Carter and Ryan are part of uh, the Phantoms of Monsters 14 research team. And uh, we're glad to have them. We've got a pretty good bunch, and we looked into a lot of different things. So uh, 
Uh, you guys are a big part of the, the team, and uh, I appreciate you coming on tonight. Shane, tell us a bit about what's going on with you. Yeah, just do it. Same old, same old. Uh, you know, uh, come tomorrow, we're going to be doing a, a week-long camp out in, in the Nest area. Uh, we got a bunch of different projects planned for this year, some exciting ones. Um, other than that, you can find me at uh, limpproject.com. Um, also you can find me on Instagram and Facebook, all those social media sites, Twitter, whatever have you. And, uh, I do a podcast called Monster X Radio. been doing that since about 2013. Um, haven't put anything out lately, but, uh, the show is going to pick back up again here. We'll have a lot of great content. Um, I do have some speaking engagements coming up around the state of Washington and Oregon, maybe one or two outside of the state will, or outside of those states. We'll see. Um, but yeah, yeah. Feel free to reach out to me. Um, and uh, Lon, it's been a pleasure having me on. Uh, Carter and, and Ryan, been a pleasure uh, listening to you guys and chatting with you guys. And, and Vincent, thank you for all your work in the background there. Well, guys, I appreciate you coming on. Absolutely. Great to meet uh, you, Shane, and uh, you, Ryan, and Carter. <laughs> I know you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you guys take it easy. Have a great weekend. And I hope we can talk soon. Great. Right, thank, you. thank you. Thank you. Now, if you have an unexplained encounter sighting, feel free to contact me directly at Lon Strickler at phantomsandmonsters.com or through the Phantoms and Monsters blog site. Also, if you would like your encounter or sighting read on the uh, personal report show, please forward to my email. I want to again thank Shane Carter and Ryan for joining me this evening. And thanks to each and all of you for watching and chatting. If you made a super chat donation, it's appreciated. Your support is what makes this all possible. So please click the subscribe button and also consider becoming a member of Fans of Monsters Radio. So next week, Anne Celine, experiencer and author, will be joining us. Uh, Anne has had encounters with ghosts, shadow entities, Sasquatch, and more. Uh, she's a Reiki master, intuitive tarot reader, and a vampire witch who loves to dive into the spiritual realm. Uh, should be interesting, a lot of fun. So uh, until next week, stay healthy and have a safe and enjoyable weekend. Good night.